So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. It's easier to then get other investors because there's a draw to them specifically. You know, I know investors, I'm not saying specifically on my cap table, but I know investors who are very shiny, great brand names, but their reputation is they invest and then they use the brand name a little bit. Who cares? And they're not involved. I know other investors who are not shiny brand names, but they will put their blood, sweat and tears into helping you as much as they possibly can. So I would say that it's less about finding shiny investors and find, it's more about finding investors that you feel like will be valuable to you and however that's valuable to you. If you're in a specific niche, aerospace, for example. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Rahul Sidhu. Thanks for doing this, man. You got it, man. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about your background and tell us about your company. Yeah. So, uh, you know, my background, I've been in basically two worlds, you know, my, my adult life, the tech world and the public safety world. On the public safety side, you know, I started a little over a decade ago, you know, starting as an EMT and then going to school to study emergency medicine, becoming a paramedic, crew chief, you know, starting to go down that path, flight medic, et cetera, and then transitioned back. This was on the East Coast, transitioned back to the L.A. area, became a police officer to really kind of tie the knot with fire, police, EMS, and having experienced all that in the field. That was that was my upbringing in public safety. On the tech side, I, you know, I've been doing it since I was a kid. You know, I had my first video game when I was 14 years old and had a little startup that paid my way through college a little bit in high school and, and then eventually got into public safety tech by working on apps that allowed paramedics to send EKGs from the field, physicians in the hospital, and then marrying my love for public safety and tech with Spider Tech, the company that I'm currently the CEO of, starting that in 2015 with my co-founders. And I've been doing that ever since. So I've got a bunch of questions, but let's start off with giving people just a brief overview on what Spider Tech does. Sure. So, I, you know, I, I kind of put this in the realm of relevant public, I would say police reform technology in some ways, although I don't like to shoehorn it as that because it is more than that. But, you know, for, for today, I feel like that's a, a good way to think about it. So we kind of tackle the the, the problems in, in a couple ways. Public perception being one of the challenges that law enforcement agencies have to face. And, and uh, you know, m- there are multiple solutions. So I can't say that we're trying to solve for all of it. But what we are trying to solve for is improving an agency's ability to provide customer service to the folks that they interact with, and also improving the agency's ability to be accountable and transparent with the public in a way that is practical and helps both parties. And the way we do that, you know, it's like I said, it's two pieces. The customer service piece is a lot like you think about the private sector. When you buy something from Amazon or any of these other companies that you interact with, you get that email, you know, text same day saying, hey, here are all the items you bought. Click here to track your order. Your items shipped. Your items delivered. And that helps you feel confident that something is happening. It keeps you in the loop and it provides for a better customer service experience. We built that system for the first time for public safety. In fact, you could consider it for the first time for government. 
And for the 50 plus public safety agencies we have in the uh, in North America, in any of those jurisdictions, if you call 911, you hang up the phone, you're going to get a text that says, hey, this is what you called about. Here's what to expect. An officer's on the way, you know, all the way through the process. When the officer files a police report, hey, here's the your report number. Here's what you need to send to your insurance company. A detective has been assigned. An arrest has been made. And now we're even doing it for the court system. So throughout the court's process, any prosecution, you're going to continuously get that level of customer service automatically from those agencies. And on the second side of it, it's all about feedback loops. Accountability and transparency is about ensuring that the threshold for feedback is low enough to where you can get enough data from people who are interacting with the police to be able to make meaningful changes. And so just like Amazon, they send you those surveys. We're constantly sending these mobile-friendly surveys directly to people who interact with police so they can provide their feedback to the agencies, which allows them to not only you know, mitigate uh, liability much faster, be able to understand where the areas are for improvement, but to also positively reinforce good interactions with the community members and make that quantifiable so officers can go out there and be promoted by, you know, having these good interactions. That's the high level summary. Yeah. Well, you know, listeners of this show know how much we like law enforcement because of our work with child rescue and trying to prevent child trafficking and exploitation. And, 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 you know, I've got friends that are cops, you know, clients, you know, and, and then just like every population, there's, there's folks who are not so good. Pick, pick any profession. There's some dirtbags in it. Right. 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 And, and then you've got a, you know, pretty hostile media, right. And, you know, rap, rap music didn't do anything too, too great for the perception of cops for a couple of decades. Right. So it does seem like you've got an eager market, <laughs> people who need some help. Yeah. Look, it's funny because, you know, I don't even want to isolate rap music. Generally, the culture has always been around outlaws being cool and, and cops being not cool. And, and so that's always been there. But obviously, there's more recently, the, there's been more and more focus on trying to remove bad cops from from the ranks and trying to reform public safety and policing in a way that you know could benefit the society in the long run but just like any any time all of the entire public tries to solve a problem you have practical solutions you have impractical solutions and the practical solutions are the ones that ultimately will lead to to the positive change. Sometimes the impractical solutions can kind of push things backwards a little bit. But yeah, we look. It's it's a it's definitely a good time to be in the the you know in the world of police reform. And there's there's plenty of work to be done. And we're just trying to roll up our sleeves and do our part. Well, what I love about I think what I liked about your story and it was like yeah, let's have those guys on, is that you're like you're coming at it from the inside, you know, like mm -hmm. the, the thing that I don't have a lot of patience for is when people are like, when they want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and they're like, right. you know, like they, they come up with these crazy solutions that, you know, would work for about four days until you realize like, oh, you know, <laughs> that's not, that's not a long-term solution, right? These, mm -hmm. these drastic, like very objectifying suggestions on what should be done, right? With very little basis in reality. And yet, you know, it's it's not like people haven't complained about cops for how many centuries in every country in the world, okay, right? And and like to me where I feel like there's been a struggle and I'd love for you to weigh in on this is I feel like there's like you get these people with these crazy ideas of like we don't need police and stuff and I'm like you haven't spent a lot of time in certain developing world countries, have you? <laughs> you know? I'm right, not sure. Right. I'm not sure you're really sure what you're asking for there, right? And right. then but on the other side, I don't think the, you know, it's pretty obvious that a great answer isn't, well, we don't want to, we don't want to get rid of anything. So let's change nothing. That's not a great answer either. Yeah, right. Of course. And, and so, I mean, you look at this, think about when any of us got in trouble for something we knew we shouldn't have done in the first place. Right. But we'd rationalized it to ourselves. 
We're like, that's yeah. the last thing you're going to hear. Like when my, when my spouse, when she points her finger at me, what about this? That's like the last thing I want to hear, right? Well, right. Look, at how, look at how many departments, at least in this country, have been resistant to change in the last handful of years. And sure. And, and it's because of the finger pointing, it's because people come at them guns hot. You know what I mean? Like they're, you know, and so no wonder, it, no wonder it signals a like, listen, you're not my boss. Let's go shields up. Go ahead and have your own opinion, but you don't, you're not going to influence me. Right. Right. And yet you see certain departments who can kind of look past the hostility and look for the kernel of truth underneath, mm-hmm. uh, underneath all the fluff. Right. And there's some like amazing stories. You know, I've, I've been lucky enough to have a, a couple of clients of folks who like genuinely embrace this like innovation, continuous improvement. It's like pretty inspirational yeah. to me, especially while being criticized. You could expect them to be defensive and, and certain chiefs and folks who, who aren't really impressed me. Yeah, yeah. I think I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. But that latter point, I think, is is the important piece. The human psychology you know like if you come at somebody generally speaking no matter what they're always going to be defensive like that's that's just like the immediate that's just part of the human condition but especially so if you're someone who doesn't know or hasn't experienced what that particular person knows or has experienced and then you come to them and try and tell them what to do and that that adds to the defensiveness obviously you know as police officers we have to we have to look past that you know the the i'd say the the best of anybody is going to go okay they're going to have the ability to, go, you know, give that other person the benefit of the doubt and go, okay, let, let, like you said, what is the kernel of truth here? What is the area for improvement? I, and be able to separate the emotion from the practical aspect of it. You know, I've, I've had the fortunate, I would say like my life has, has, there's, there's some intersectionality there for me that has given me the ability to look on each side of the fence a little bit, you know, for your, your, obviously I've, I've had the police experience. I've been in the field. I've, you know, worked as a full-time officer for a little bit of time and, and a reserve officer as well. And in, in a variety of different ways, but the other side of this is for your, for your audience that isn't looking at the video here. I'm a Brown guy. So, you know, I've experienced that side of it too, of growing up in the country and, and having dealt with racism, especially post 9-11. In fact, to the point where I've had to deal with racist cops and I've even had to testify testify against racist police chiefs as essentially the key witness and have them fired. And, and so I've been on that side of the fence too. I can dive into that story. And then the third side of it is as an entrepreneur, I'm all about innovation. I'm all about problem solving. I'm all about, you know, like people telling me, no, this doesn't work or this is a bad idea. And I, I go I go out and try to do it anyway. I'd say when I was originally, you know, trying to build things and and get into it, you know, my, my level or my understanding as an entre- entrepreneur has definitely evolved a little bit. In the beginning, you're just like, I have this idea. You get so excited about that idea. You basically emotionally attach yourself to a solution as opposed to a problem. I try to tell new founders all the time, fall in love with a problem, never fall in love with a solution. Because if you attach yourself to a solution, you're going to emotionally work backwards to why, you know, like you said, justify why that solution makes sense. You're going to, you're going to go blinders on. And if you apply, you know, any level of, of like very impactful emotions, love and hate being those two types of emotions, then you're going to start acting punitively in some fashions. I mean, abolishing the police doesn't sound practical and folks will, you know, like abolishing even some cases defunding ends up being like a punitive thing that like people walk backwards into why they would say that it's logical. And in some, some ways defunding actually some things about it makes sense, but it, it doesn't end up being a practical way to the solution. 
But even then, eventually over time as an entrepreneur, you have to really build your ability to, to be intellectually honest with yourself and build iterative practices and focus more on detaching yourself emotionally from any solution. And some of the best, most experienced entrepreneurs out there, and I'm not talking about myself, but folks that are much better than me are very good at going, okay, here's a problem. I have a handful of ideas. I'm going to test each one iteratively, and I'm going to see which one makes the most practical sense to get to solving this problem. I'm not going to attach myself to any of these solutions. And then eventually, over time with some patience, I'm going to go, this is probably, this is my best chance almost mathematically at solving this problem. And I'm going to continuously iterate, but be ready to pivot because ultimately I'm in love with this problem and I'm not in love with any particular solution. Over time, that's how entrepreneurs end up thinking. That's how established policymakers end up thinking. And folks that aren't, you know, that haven't gone through the hurdles of like myself, who I've done this so poorly in the past, I've learned these lessons the hard way. My ego has gotten the way, my pride has gotten the way, my emotions have gotten the way. I've had to learn that the hard way. Folks end up just coming up on Instagram and going, I've solved the Middle East crisis. I've solved the, the how, to, how to end world, world hunger, how to solve racism, how to solve policing. And and the the culture, I feel like, of America has built these, not only the echo chambers, but has built this psychology amongst people where they feel like they have to go on social media as quickly as possible. And, you know, whatever they feel like is what they have to do to satisfy their echo chamber for whatever is virtuous. And this is, by the way, not just left, this is left and right. This is both sides. Whatever is virtuous for each side, they have to go on Instagram immediately and say, this is how I feel about this thing. And anyone who doesn't feel like this is terrible. And so basically performing opera for their echo chamber and then going back to their life every time a world crisis happens. And that's not, that doesn't solve anything. It sometimes brings awareness to it. Ultimately, it's the practical thinkers that are going to have to roll up their sleeves, the ones that are involved to try and come up with these solutions. Yeah. Well, that makes me think of a few questions. Well, actually, before I get into these, the first question I want to ask is how you got involved with Techstars. We had we had the founder, Brad Feld, on the show, and he's great. What was what's that story? Yeah, man, I got really lucky, super lucky. I was I was in a full time coding boot camp, so I left uh, the police force and I spent three months, nine to five, Monday through Friday, learning how to code. And towards the end of that boot camp, the second half, I already started pursuing this idea for Spider Tech. So I was jumping in and out of class to you know take little client meetings and things like that. I got a message. This is in 2015, I believe, maybe late 2014. I got a message from one of the uh, folks that worked at General Assembly, the the boot camp I was in, that said, "Hey, the managing director director for for TechStars New York is." is here and he's about to walk out. And I went, oh shit. And I closed my laptop and I ran out of class and I ran up to him and I said, hey, do you have two minutes for a quick pitch? And he's, he looked at me and he's like, uh, okay, sure, man. Cause you know, that's, <laughs> he's hearing that a hundred times a day. And I pitched him and he's like, all right, let's sit down and talk. And then that turned into a 30 minute conversation. He said, okay, I want you to meet a couple people. This is Alex Iskold, by the way, still one of my favorite people. One of the earliest investors, investor in our company, Shout out to Alex, most talented pre-seed investors out there, by the way. Alex is gold. I sat down with him. He introduced me to Yohei, who was also in Techstars, and Cody Sims, who was also in Techstars. Brilliant people. I spent more time with them. They urged me to apply. We applied and eventually got in. And Techstars New York, which was the program we were in, the, it was like the horizontal program. This is back six years ago when Techstars was a lot smaller. We went through that for three months and it was one of the greatest experiences of our lives. You know, we had, I, I've had Al Doan on the show a few times who worked at Techstars. Instead of like getting a graduate degree, he decided to be an intern at Techstars and then built a, built like a extremely successful business, like tens of millions of dollars to, to him kind of business. And yeah. And I've had him on a number of times and, and he just has had such great things to say about that community. And then we had Brad on and, you know, he, 
all his books and all this stuff. It's, it was fun to learn from him. Yeah. You know, one of the things is, is I'm spidertech.com. And by the way, guys, that's that's spider without the E if you're looking at it. And I had this really great podcast. Actually, it just came out today. Today, folks, is May 12th. So this guy who a lot of people recognize the name, but Ram Sharan is this really famous author. He's written, you know, 30 books, sold like 5 million copies at four New York Times bestsellers. Harvard PhD, taught at MIT, but he's like, you know, he coached Jack Welch from GE for years. He he was p- part of the team that helped get Steve Jobs brought back to Apple. He helped like when Citigroup was going bankrupt and the head of the Federal Reserve said it's over. He's like part of the team that put it back together. Like, I mean, just like at the highest of high levels kind of guy, right? And his second to last book, because he's got a lot, okay? His second to last book is all about Amazon. And the thing that just stuck out to me so much, I mean, it's got to be top 1% interview out of these 600 that I've done, okay? And he talks about this idea of how much the future belongs to the people who can customize. He says the ideas of like mass, one size fits all are over. Well, that's not shocking. I think we all kind of know that. But just the way he said it, it sunk in so much. And, and he just went through examples beyond just Amazon of people who are good at that. And so as I look at your, you know, as I'm looking at spider tech here and, I, and I'm seeing things like, you know, the system identifies the best way to engage the victim or caller, email, SMS, these kind of things. Like this idea of can you use technology to efficiently serve people in the way they want to be served? Like they're just inherently feels like a principle of success. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that by itself is a step-by-step process. You know, right now, most services one size fits all, right? And it, when you start applying technolo- you know, technology to it and even layers of like basic AI, ML, machine learning, and then add step-by-step layer by layer, you get closer and closer to services that are tailored towards how you like to be served. And, and like one way to, I guess, think about this is like, I'm sure you guys have, everyone's heard of the concept of love languages, and the, the, I think it's five love languages. Uh, you know, some people love l- receiving words of affirmation, physical touch, acts of service, um, gifts, quality time. Everybody has a different way that they like to be appreciated. And similarly, I'm sure everybody has a different way that they like to be served. Understanding that about somebody is is a complicated process. If you can generally tailor yourself to how you feel like the, the you know most people like to be served, that's already a step above what everybody else is doing. And that's I'd say the stage that we're in right now, where we're trying to get a sense of okay, we found out that over eighty five percent of people interact with the police want their follow up to be via text message, and after that email, and after that phone call, and after that knock on my door, and after that send me a letter. So I mean, sorry, send me a letter, then knock on my door. So we're like, okay, we generally understand how the, like most people want to be served. That's step one after you know not doing anything. Step two would go, okay, how about you select how you want to be served? How about you select what options you know you want to receive follow-up and how you want to receive it, when you want to receive it. Now you're getting a little bit closer to tailoring the customer experience. Then you start getting into the system itself understands and starts making those assessments so you don't even have to go through that step and select anything. It's like it understands your love languages. That's where I would say technology is trying to jump from step two to step three. And that is, that's being done right now. I mean, the data that Apple is collecting on people, the data that Facebook is collecting, these are all just like it's understanding what ads you want to be served. It's similarly being able to build psychological profiles to understand how you want to be communicated with, when you want to be communicated. And it's all driven by revenue. I mean, these are for-profit companies that are building these models to better understand how to make money. And these companies make their money through advertisement. So applying the same type of, 
of of modeling from advertisement to service to how I want to be served in these other capacities is not a large it's not a large jump from a technology standpoint. It's the the data is there, the machine learning's there. It's about applying it in that way, and ultimately that comes down to profits. Is it going to be profitable for me to better understand and put more of my effort and energy into serving somebody, assuming that that better service yields me and better profits? Sure. But as that technology becomes more and more readily available and easier and cheaper to utilize, that's when you can see service-driven organizations like the government, like nonprofits, like companies that focus on customer service, be able to more cheaply apply that to what they do. So I think it's inevitable that we get there, but it's going to be a step-by-step process and ultimately it's going to be driven by what makes the most money and when. Love it. Well, can you can you tell us a success story? Tell us one of your clients. Uh, sure. You know, like we, we've had some some pretty decent success stories. I would say... One of my favorite success stories is actually one of our earliest success stories, and that is with the Tucson Police Department in Arizona. Tucson PD was actually our first customer unpaid, like actually our second unpaid customer, but the first police department I ever spoke with about spider tech. And we've built a relationship with them over time. We gave them the product for free originally, and we said, hey, this is what we've got. We built it up piece by piece together with this particular customer in Arizona. Years and years, we've been working with Tucson PD. And where it started as a pitch of, hey, here's all the things we wanted to do, it ultimately became, here are the two things it's going to do in the beginning. And people went, okay, fine, but we're going to take it for free, so let's do it. And then over time, you know, when we piloted it, I remember going to a meeting six months after it turned on to meet with the chief of police and the assistant chiefs and some of the other folks and and try to brag about what we've done. And I remember the chief, a great guy, he, he said, like, he was kind of skeptical. He's like, okay, this is kind of cool, but this isn't really driving much for us. You're going to have to do better. And I thought to myself, man, that's, that's a total bummer. But it was it was a flame we needed to, to, to be able to, to continue the process. So we're like, okay, we've got to do better. So we did better and we continuously did better. And then eventually he was like, okay, now, now we're talking, now we're cooking with gas. And we started building working groups with Tucson PD and continuously building more and more features. And then eventually uh, they started paying us. You know, we're talking about not a small amount of money, but, you know, I don't want to give the exact number out of the way, but five to the six, six figure range a year. And they became going from a pilot customer to a fully, you know, like a paid customer. And then <laughs> members from the Tucson Police Department started jumping on board of Spider Tech. They were retiring, they were doing other things. And so they came on board. I remember, you know, we hired two police officers that were formerly Tucson PD cops, one of them having implemented Spider Tech at Tucson PD. We started building even deeper relationships with the folks there. And, they're still our most, you know, the, the customer that utilizes our technology the most, the, the customer we spend the most time with. And we couldn't have done this without without them. So that is my favorite success story because without Tucson PD, and of course there's other agencies involved too, that was that anchor tenant. And I would tell anybody that is getting into enterprise software where you know your your contracts are going to be in the tens, hundreds, millions of dollars a year range. You want to find a customer as early as possible that can grow with you, that can you know get involved in your organization, that can share those wins with you, because those are the ones that are going to end up driving value for the rest of your customers. I love it. So tell us, what what were the features that you started with? And then when he said you got up your game, what'd you add? Yeah, that's a great question. So when we first started, you know, SPIDER itself was an acronym. Yeah, you've talked to a lot of police and military in your, in your career here. So you know that, you know, cops and military, we love our acronyms. I don't know what it is about cops and military love acronyms, but we do. And SPIDER stood for Specialized Police Intelligence and – I'm sorry, Information and Data Resource. And the whole goal of SPIDER Tech when it first started was what data can we – basically – 
can be utilized to assist the police mission outside of just catching bad guys, you know, catching criminals, making arrests. There's, there was that part was already kind of a, a saturated space. I looked at policing as there are other things that are involved in the mission of policing, serving the communities, better understanding, you know, community policing. These are different things that are being underserviced within the technology sector to make that better. And ultimately, in 2014, we were starting to see, you know, the results of of, of Ferguson and a few other things that happened that pushed public perception as a very important metric for police chiefs to be able to determine whether or not they're they're performing well. And so that was the basis of it. But when we originally started, it was about how do we get data in the hands of patrol officers so they can make more efficient decisions with what they're going to do for the day? How do we get data in the hands of police captains and chiefs that can give them more information from how the community feels or more data from what is going on within the police department so they can make more data informed, you know, better in, in decisions based on data that they're they're gathering that they otherwise weren't gathering. However, going through that process, that was difficult because not only was the integration to be able to make this happen more and more difficult with these departments uh, for a small startup that had only raised you know about a million bucks to be able to do, it was also something that was kind of a conceptually difficult sale to go to a police chief and say, we're going to get all this data for you and it's going to help you make better decisions. And they go, okay, well, what kind of decisions? Because they're not, they're not already a data-driven you know, organization. So you had to sell that concept to them, which was a heavy lift. And we were running out of capital quick. We were burning through this money. I remember our, our original investors, Winklevoss, and a couple other folks. You know, we we didn't raise a lot. So I, I was I was thinking, okay, we're about two thirds of the way through this stash of, uh, stash of cash that we got to make some. We actually get, have to get some sales. We got to get some wins across. So I flew out to Burlington, Vermont. One of the uh, the the chief of Burlington, his name's Michael Sherling, great guy. He's like, hey, we'll we'll get. You know, I've got a boat. We'll grab a couple beers in the boat. My co-founder Elon and I. Let's just talk about this. Let's figure out how we can solve this. And I remember the, one of the last conversations we had before we were getting off that boat was you need to do something simple. What is something simple you can do? Obviously, you guys are now building this access to data, which is great. How about utilizing that data to better, better improve customer service? Just focus on one customer service thing you can do for departments. And the start was, let's focus on something simple, crime victims. Crime victims need, you know, it's, it's one of the most important transactions they'll ever make is calling the police and asking for some help. That's more important than buying a toothbrush, toothbrush on Amazon. But if I buy a toothbrush on Amazon, I'm going to get such better customer service than I am from the police department. I'm going to get this message that tells me, here's what to expect, sets my expectations, lets me track the order, all of that. Now I feel comfortable that Amazon's doing something for me, but most people in the you know in the country are not going to feel that level of trust with their department. So send a message, one simple receipt for service, acknowledgement message, whatever you want to call it, to crime victims automatically so they feel like, okay, I understand what the department's doing for me. So we said, okay. So I flew back to uh, LA and I, I went to the, the blackboard we have in our office and I erased everything and I, I got the engineers together. And I said, we have 30 days to build this. And it was just a simple tool that did this one thing. And I called a police chief in in Central California. His name was, well, I mean, it, it, it's it's an agency called Grover Beach, Grover Beach Police Department in a small department, great folks there. And I said, I called Chief Peters and said, hey, look, can we deploy this? He said, sure, let's give it a shot. And within about two months, we built it and we deployed it. And then we started showing to other agencies. We went to an FBI conference and we started showing it and it started to take off. And that's what the product ended up becoming. So, so, and let, just to, you know, take the water to the end of the road there. What exactly did you do in Grover Beach? Like what, what was, you know, they got, they said, oh, the officers will be there in 17 minutes. Like what, what did they get? 
Well, we first started with just when an officer submits a report, it'll automatically send an email and or text message to the crime victim, giving them more information on what to send to their insurance company, what to expect next, et cetera. So it's simply like buying a toothbrush on Amazon. It's the receipt that you'd get if you bought something online. And did you have a feedback loop to know if they appreciated that or not or what, what happened there? That was the second thing we built was the feedback loop. First, we were like, let's just get this value out. And then the second thing we built almost you know, four weeks later was let's start sending out surveys and see how do they feel about this? Is it valuable? And what, what were examples of things people said? Well, I'll tell you this, uh, you know, that at, at a greater scale, the second agency we deployed this to is Tucson. That's about a thousand cops versus Tucson, uh, Grover Beach has about 20. At a greater scale, we, we found that folks that got these messages, these acknowledgement messages, just the message I'm talking about, indicated via the surveys, they're 43% less likely to call Tucson PD to ask for more information about the report. Right <laughs> off the bat, yeah. huge jump. And I, I try to explain this to other folks. I say, look, imagine if that system, if you, you were buying something online from a, you know, from a website that didn't, you clicked submit and then you didn't see anything. You'd probably call and go, did that order go through? You know, like when is my item going to be shipped? I have no idea. If that system went down at Amazon for one day, Amazon would be getting phone calls all day because of that. And that's the current situation for government, not just public safety, all government services. People just don't know what to expect. So by solving that one thing, we dropped those calls by 43%. Well, it's nice is you can probably put a dollar volume on what does it cost for those people to sit there and answer phones? What is, what's the salary cost to sit and answer phones yeah. in addition to annoying people that they had to call in and find out? Absolutely. And that's that's per every message that we send. So the acknowledgement message is one version. A smaller version, another message we send is if the system itself determines that someone called 911, an officer has not marked themselves, like they haven't showed up on scene for, let's say, 20 minutes. It's configurable to what the department wants. Well, it'll send another text that says, hey, we apologize to delay. Here's what's going on. If, you, if, you, if you're no longer on scene, let us know. Click here if you want to file the report on your phone instead. By doing that, it's, having, it's not just having an impact on the dispatcher that would likely have to call and make that phone call and apologize. It's having an impact on the likelihood that if someone were to say, okay, I'm going to cancel my call for service, an officer is not going to drive 12 minutes across the city to get there and only for the 911 caller to no longer be there and now be 12 minutes late to the next call because that compounds. So all these little things end up resulting in cost savings for every agency, not only a better service for that particular person that called the police. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think like, how can these principles apply to, you know, how can these business, how can these principles apply in everybody else's business? You know, like for me, I'm thinking like our investment fund, right? So we, we're, we've got this 50C3 offering, which just means that legally I'm allowed to advertise it to anybody, but only take money from accredited investors. Right. And, you know, we have to give all these like warnings and like, there's no guaranteed results. Everything is a risk. Right. But, but essentially we're targeting Hey, our, our, like we created ourselves to try and get you somewhere between 8% to 14% a year out of these quarterly checks that you're going to get, right? Right. Well, that is not going to change per person. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm legally, I can't be like, but I really like Rahul. So he gets the 14. Who is your name again? Well, let's give you 11, right? Yeah. And yet that I don't really feel like that should let me off the hook either. Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like there's got to be aspects of this I can personalize, including like, how do you, you know, how do you want to get your quarterly reports? Do you just want a video? Do you want paper? Do you want, you know, so digital paper, things like this. But I, I'm just sitting here thinking like, how can I push myself? What are the other aspects that, you know, really what I'm doing is trying to make it so they don't have to have any hassle of owning real estate. Hey, you don't have to do the toilets and trash and tenants. Like all you have to do is hook up your bank account so I can direct deposit the money every quarter. That's like, you know, right. 
And yet there's still right. going to be customer service aspects involved and people are going to want to know why did the number go up or things like this, you know? And so it just makes me, I'm trying to think through these principles and go like, how does that apply in our world? Any thoughts? Yeah. I mean, like if the, if the goal is simply operational efficiency, you, you can have different, whatever you're trying to do, you're going to have different goals. Luckily, this particular thing that we're doing intersects with operational efficiency increases and customer service, you know, capability increases, right? That's a perfect intersection. But if the goal is, is talking about operational efficiency, it's zoom out of customer service and look at what can I make an investment in now in terms of automation that will ultimately pay dividends down the road, right? If I if it's going to cost me 60 hours of staff time to set something up to automate a certain task that then takes 10 hours a week off my staff time, it'll be six weeks until this thing pays for itself. And now I'm eventually becoming more and more efficient. And then you have to get a better sense. Anytime you automate something, I wouldn't, spe- you know, it's like the, pri- I, the private sector has long had a saying, you can't really improve something until you can measure it. So anytime you automate something, you want to get a sense of how do I measure that this automation is leading to some level of success? You know, when we automate something, we're looking at, okay, how does that going to impact satisfaction by the community member? Just like I said, a 43, 43% decrease in likelihood of calling. Well, how much does one of those phone calls cost the agency? How much does it cost when they have a lawsuit, for example, for, you know, because they weren't able to determine that this particular officer, this particular person might be a liability? Well, that's, that's a return from just sending out surveys to be able to track those liabilities. You have to really put a lot of thought into where is the return on investment. But it doesn't have to be, like I said, customer service. If you're talking about adventure, right? Adventure, it comes down to, well, what are all the things that I have to do as part of my job? My associates have to do as part of their job. My, you know, The folks in finance have to do as part of their job that I can start going, okay, there's room for automation here. And it, this might be a good idea, but ultimately, how do I determine, for example, if I'm going to automate cold emails to founders, right? Am I going to have an associate that's going to do this? Okay, fine. If I have an associate that's going to do this because I want a personal touch, well, how much of the research can be automated? Well, maybe not even automated, but how much of this can I do just by trying to gather lists and there are list building folks that are much cheaper to gather lists. I'm not going to spend my associates time on this. Instead, they're going to focus on booking things. Okay, well, even booking something, they should be using Calendly to be able to automate how much time it takes to do that. Okay, but even doing that, they should be using Zoom to be able to automate, automatically send those out. I mean, there are all these little things and bigger things that just transcend every single organization where technology and automation are going to, it's going to be the future anyway. You got to, at some point, take the time to make those investments. Yeah, I, I, I think it's interesting how deep you've gone into customer service, though. I think that you know, there's, there's messages there. Like, as I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, for sure with our tenants, you know what I mean? Like in, in the buildings we own. Right. Yeah. And, and it's interesting to think about like, almost like a sport. Like what if we, what if we turn it on like a sport where it was like a game that never ended? Like, Hey, what, what else can we do? You know, how else can we, how can we, how else can we automate an even higher level of service, you know, on a higher level of customer care? Like if, if we played that as a game or we have a team that played that as a game consistently, you know, yeah. just the nature of focusing on it, we get better at it. Yeah. I mean, look, it's just not only is it never going to be perfect, but the world changes so much that the opportunity to get better is going to continue. You know, like if you have something that is near perfect today in 10 years, it will become obsolete. So you have to continuously improve that particular thing to just to stay ahead of the fact that things will continuously evolve. So it is a never ending game and the never ending game of, of dollars spent is going to change too, because what might be, you know, a good way to spend your money in terms of investing for your business, your organization to make it better is going to be in 10 years, potentially one of the worst ideas. 
and and something else is going to have to come out across to, to make it better for you. And then as as the world as the governments add regulations, as the consumer markets change, as people demand different things, as the value of the dollar decreases, you know these are all different things that are going to eventually make it so you have to continuously keep up. It is a marathon that never stops, and you just have to get better at running to a level that is going to be efficient. You're not going to tire yourself out. You're not going to run too slow. You're not going to run too fast. But you're going to continuously evolve. I think ultimately those are the best businesses out there. They're businesses that don't do that well. You're blockbusters that didn't evolve into digital, right? Your folks that do that pretty well. I mean, like you've got folks that are like, I'd say Google just generally does a good job kind of staying ahead. But in 10 years, who knows if that's going to be my opinion, you know, and it's it just, it's about maintaining that pace and continuously pushing past your comfort zone. Yeah. You know, I, I'm just thinking about this in a different direction. Are you guys, are you guys public about how much you've raised or is that, are you keeping that private? I mean, I can, I can give you a, a ballpark, but I would say yeah. it's uh, just over, just over $5 million. Yeah. So can you talk about some of the people that you got money from? Because there's some pretty fancy names on the list. Sure. So I mentioned Google already. Alphabet, their parent company, has a uh, subsidiary that focuses on government invent or innovation called Sidewalk Labs. That would be one of them. I mentioned Winklevoss Capital. That's another. Techstars is another. The yeah, I've got some uh, close friends as well that are like uh, Birchmere Ventures uh, you know, that's been around for decades in venture capital on the East Coast. Stage Ventures, which is a a uh, pretty hot venture capital fund here in in Los Angeles. Shout out to Sean Amarati and and Alex Rubalcava and 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 formerly also one of his partners, Rob Vickery, that was involved in that deal. Other folks that are, are angels, so you know Greg Schroy and and Taylor Adams. I, it's it's hard because I feel like I go down the list and then I don't want to. I want to make sure I've given everybody yeah. their their. their yeah, but let's. It's interesting because I also got folks on the cap table that are, are are friends, you know, like a gentleman that is a, a local dentist that has put a, a, a pretty decent chunk of change and has always showed up when we needed money. He's he's been one of our most valuable investors as well. So it's 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 all across the mix. Yeah. So there's so many folks that would love to have you know Alphabet, Google, you know, as as an investor, or, or you mm -hmm. know, Winklevoss. They they've obviously become a lot more public lately. TechStars is is a big, you know, it's a that's a high credibility. That's a high credibility thing. You know what I mean? Like it, it opens doors just to just the fact that those people have backed you opens doors and stuff. When you think about not just getting one high profile investor, but multiple, what do you think are some of the fundraising principles that were successful for you? Yeah, I think this is one of those things where you, you know, you do kind of want to work backwards. There's definitely a Venn diagram to a brand name and how valuable that investor ends up being outside of the cash. And it's it's a heavy overlap. And the brand name ends up being it's like cause and effect. Are they a brand name because they were valuable to everybody else? But is there, or is their brand what makes them valuable because it's easier to then get other investors because there's a draw to them specifically? You know, I know investors, I'm not saying specifically on my cap table, but I know investors who are very shiny, great brand names, but their reputation is they invest and then they use the brand name a little bit. Who cares? And they're not involved. I know other investors who are not shiny brand names, but they will put their blood, sweat and tears into helping you as much as they possibly can. So I would say that it's less about finding shiny investors and find, it's more about finding investors that you feel like will be valuable to you and however that's valuable to you. If you're in a specific niche, aerospace, for example, you're going to want to find investors who can reach across the rest of that industry and be that aerospace investor that knows the other aerospace investors for your series A and series B and can introduce you to clients. I mean, those are the people you're going to want the pre-seed and the seed. And I think, but ultimately raising money should not be your goal. You shouldn't build a startup at the pre-seed or seed stage to think to yourself, how do I get money from Andreessen Horowitz? How do I get money from Sequoia? 
It's just not the way to think because you're going to end up not getting money from them. What ultimately ends up being important to you is what is my business? How do I want to build this business? And how do I succeed in six months? How do I succeed in 18 months? At this, In the beginning, it's about the short wins and the long-term vision and piecing that together over time. So to yourself, if you're thinking, okay, I'm building this enterprise startup. And here's what I, here's my big idea. Here's my big idea that has this big total addressable market. Here's how I see myself getting from point A to point Z. You're going to be totally wrong about that more often than not. But ultimately having some level of a plan getting from point A to point Z. Okay. How do I get from point A to point B? Point A to point B is going to be, I just, maybe I need to raise a little bit of money. Maybe I can bootstrap it, whatever. But point B shows that there's some traction here. There's some genuine level of product market fit. And that's where I want to get to. Point B to point C means I have to raise maybe a pre-seed round, maybe a seed round. Well, how much conviction have I built around that? And how much conviction can I then build to the investors I want to go? That Then you build a deck around that. You build a network around that. The Some folks will go down the route that I did, which is totally fine, which is find a tech accelerator that can build your network for you. For someone like me that wasn't didn't grow up in tech, you know, like at least officially speaking, I grew up in public safety. I was a firefighter, p- paramedic cop, you know, who, I didn't know people. So an accelerator taught me what I needed and built a network for me then I was able to go out there and raise. If I didn't have that, it would have been more difficult. So you have to make these little decisions across the way to get there. But I definitely don't think anyone should ever think to themselves, as first-time founders at least, how do I raise from Sequoia? How do I raise from Andreessen? Your goal is how do I get from point A to B to from B to C, some C to D. And if you do that well, the Andreessen's and the Sequoia's will come. Yeah. When you think about the actual meeting itself, you know, I, I, lots of people have raised way more money than me, but I, but I have raised tens of millions of dollars. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm always interested in people's like mental head game of like, you're going into the meeting and just like the approach or what, what you found personally works for you. So you, you, you know, your stuff, you've got some traction, you've got the meeting. What are some principles that you feel like make successful meetings with potential investors? I think it's a combination of, it, there's a lot of principles to raising money and venture capital that I think also apply to the psychology of dating. And it's funny because the psychology of dating is it, 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 it feels so immature. It feels so like emotionally manipulative, but it is the game that everyone plays. And so like some people are going, I don't like that. I don't like, I don't like to play any games when I'm dating. Definitely not the case, but you have to kind of apply that to a certain extent in venture capital, because when you go in there, for example, you want to be confident. You want that other person to feel like, look, you're hot on the market and it would be a benefit for them to, to be involved with you. And, and you're not desperate. You don't want to come off as desperate. You don't want to come off as I hope this meeting goes well, because I'm not going to have, I don't have other meetings lined up. There aren't other investors that want me. You have to make sure that when you start that you're in it for the long game, you're going to have to put together a spreadsheet. I'm not saying apply this to dating, but it's like, it's like dating online. You're swiping, you're swiping, you know, there's, there's a volume game to it. I'm going to put uh, a spreadsheet together of like a hundred different venture capitalists. I'm going to narrow it down based on who I think I want to date and who I think is likely to going to want to date me. And then I'm going to focus on those and I'm going to go on 10 dates at a time and in, in a week. Now don't ever do that part in, in the dating world, but 10 dates at a time. And I'm going to meet some folks. And my whole goal for that first meeting is to show them who I am, what I'm about, understand who they are, what they're about and see if it's a good match. And some of those dates are going to ghost you. Some of those dates are going to kind of drag you along a little bit and go, yeah, yeah, we're going to have a second meeting. And uh, I just need some diligence. And you're going to get better sense of whether or not this person's for real, whether they're, you're a good match to them and they're a good match for you. But the psychology of being desirable is always going to be there. This is one of those things that's outside of your business being good. And it's just generally about convincing them that you're confident 
and you don't necessarily need them. In fact, when our business became profitable, the meetings I would have with venture capitalists to raise raise uh, the next round went very, very differently than the meetings that we had before we were profitable because they knew we didn't need them. They knew we had different meetings lined up. They knew that, okay, this is just one of the, he's he's just deciding if he's going to take money, number one, and then deciding if he's going to take money for us, number two. And the pitches went differently because they spent way more time in the beginning trying to pitch them as a venture capital firm to, to us than we spent trying to pitch us to them. And a lot of that, like I said, is very similar to the psychology of dating. You know, Ladies, if you're listening, if you're listening to this, I'm not that terrible uh, on the date. Uh, I'm trying to apply this to make it money. So, you know, it's interesting that that one of my heroes, he's a mentor of mine. I've been lucky enough to have him as a volunteer at our charity child rescue and to to get him talk him into working for us sometimes to come like to come help us out with some of our consulting clients. But he spent a dozen years on FBI SWAT and then did the FBI hostage negotiator thing and then was counter intel. So, mm-hmm. you know, he's the guy out talking to hostile intelligence agencies or foreign diplomats and trying to get sure. them to commit treason, become double agents for America and tell us if their sure. country is going to try to nuke us. Right. Okay. Yeah. Arguably one of the bigger sales that you could make in life of like, Hey, I know your whole family might get murdered back at home, but how do you feel about telling us what, what the dictator in your country is thinking? Right. Yeah. Okay. He completely agrees with you that, that getting a source to, to consider switching sides is completely the same rules of romance. And, and it's this like relationship building and a little bit of intrigue and some back and forth and not being over eager and, and having something to offer. And like that kind of like confidence, like I'm going to do this either way, but the, but like, but I'd like to do it with you. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. right. You can't be too needy. Right. And, you know, it makes me think about that cliche desperation as a stinky cologne. Right. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and it's funny because uh, even just like, you know, you were a little bit like giving a little bit of caveats of even making the analogy. Right. Because I think, yeah, especially as dudes and especially in business, like we want to be all professional. We want to, you know, we want to claim that things are logical and also, and it's like humans, humans are not logical. Do you know what no. I mean? In fact, we're predictably illogical, but right. luckily we're predictably illogical in many of the same ways repeatedly. So right. if you just learn from that, right? I think one of my, one of the worst things that ever happened to me is when someone would be like, oh, you should meet with this guy. If he likes your stuff, he could fund the whole thing. I'm like, oh, that's the worst meeting. Some, <laughs> some go meet with some dude who thinks he's about to grant you your future or not. It's like, right you know, come subjugate yourself to the king and he will decide whether you're worthy. Oh my gosh, I hate that so bad. Versus like many people don't like having more, you know, a larger number of investors. But I love the fact of like, go interview people until somebody's trying to push money in your hands and you're like, okay, we've actually got something, right? Yeah. And once you've got that version, it's like, oh man, I sure hope you want to do this. But you actually mean it. Like there's others, there's nine other guys we're going to go see after this. So like, we're going to be okay either way, but I'd really like, you know, it'd go faster if you wanted to do it with us now. Right. Yeah. Any, any thoughts on that or how would you say it different? Yeah. Or- like, I, I think there's two things to hone in on. The, the first is what you're talking about when it comes to that moment where it's like, Hey, here's this one person that could fund it all versus getting a bunch of people on your team that happened to us. In fact, when we're raising our seed round, I'm not going to use any names. There was this one particular uh, nice guy, but known as kind of an eccentric billionaire that I got introduced to. And I remember my first meeting with him, you know, like he, hilarious. He was like eating a salad 
And he was just like, during the whole time, I was like, I wonder if he's listening to me. And I had a second meeting with one of his, you know, coworkers. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, like three weeks later, he just sent like one of his uh, people he worked with just sent us a term sheet. I'm like, yep, yeah, here it is. We'll, we'll fund the whole thing. We'll keep funding it. And I was like, oh my God, like, that's crazy. Here he is, like a very famous billionaire that was just going to give us, I mean, the terms were horrendous. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, we, we didn't end up signing it. But we had this, at the same time, I was building another option, which was I can put around together these these three to four folks. And we did go down the road, uh, road of three to four folks because, you know, that's more people at the table that can be helpful. And, but I still remember that feeling of like, oh, wow, this would be great if this worked out. And then it did. And we ended up choosing not to go down that road. Because ultimately, you either have conviction that this person's going to be a great partner or not, but you're putting a lot of your your chips and you know like all the eggs in that basket, and that made me nervous. But the other thing that you were mentioning when it comes to the intelligence community and and then the kind of convincing folks, I, I've I've thought about that analogy in the past. In 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 the world of intelligence, or like you know flipping a criminal informant or, or something like that, there are like battles and wars. And to get to win a battle, you can do it the way that you're describing. It's like dating. You know, it's like you build BATNA, a better alternative to a negotiated outcome or, or, or agreement. You know, you, you sit there and you go, okay, hey, man, like I don't need you, but you kind of need me. So here's the option I'm going to give to you. I'm not desperate for this. If In the intelligence world, it's like, look, these people are coming for you, but I can give you a slightly better option. And then you win a couple battles and they go, okay, fine. You build a relationship with them. They do one thing for you and they do a second thing for you and the third thing for you. And then you start going, okay. You start building that particular informant, that particular intelligence asset, and that's great. Ultimately, to win a war, and this is what the other side would be doing, maybe extremists in other countries, et cetera, you can't just – it's not constantly better outcomes that that eventually, like you said, humans won't act logically. Eventually, they won't you know, go with the better outcome for themselves because they might be emotionally tied to something else. That emotional side of human beings is what wins wars. That I'm going to – it's the ideological aspect. What am I emotionally connected to? What do I co- believe in my core is the fundamental thing that I want to align myself with? That wins wars. And you can get somebody there eventually, but – Applying that to venture capital, for example, is you have investors who might you start out by giving you a small check because you're like, okay, you're winning a battle. They're going, you know what? I've got to deploy X amount of funds and this seems like a decent shot. Let's go ahead and do that. And then over six months, they see you execute. They go, okay, this person's actually got a pretty good thing going. And then the series A comes around and they're like, okay, you know what? This is a pretty good. I like this. I'm going to keep giving this money because it's better than giving a money to a company or giving new money to a company that might be a harder shot. But then they go, you know what? XYZ is absolutely the future of the world. That's how you win that war. That's how you get that person to go. I believe over time, this person is continuously executed. This company is executed that, that, you know, Uber will be the future of transportation that, you know, like hinge and bumble and Tinder will be the future of dating. You know, like these things, eventually it starts with, it's a good idea. I can get some liquidity out of this down the line to this is the future and I will do anything I can to, to help that company. This applies not just in intelligence, but in business and pretty much any other aspect. Eventually, that's how you get married when you date. <laughs> Interesting. You know, it is funny how much determination makes the difference. Like, if you don't have a good enough idea, sometimes there's nothing you can do about that. But it's like, if you don't have a good enough idea, but you do have enough determination and the humility to listen and adapt, it's like, like the like, just like sheer drive, we're going to do this no matter what. But like the opposite side of like actually listen to the feedback loop and adjust. Mm-hmm. There's so much that can be overcome, right? Yeah, that's 100%. I think far more valuable than having the right idea is being that kind of person. That makes you a more valuable founder, I think, a more valuable employee, 
more valuable than anything. In fact, we were just talking about this earlier, but like the special operations community, you and I were talking about that before the podcast. All these in the military, all these SOF like selection teams, when it's Navy SEALs, Green Berets, Rangers, what they're trying to, to get a sense of is whether your drive and determination can get you through anything that they throw at you. Like that is the core value proposition of essentially somebody who ends up being a special operations, you know, a candidate that goes through training because they can train you over time. They'll train you how to be a SEAL, but that's not what BUDS is about. They'll train you how to be a Green Beret. That's not what special forces assessment selection is about. It's about is this person can be, be so determined to get something done that they can go through all this misery to get to the finish line. And 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 I think that ultimately be, makes the best team members no matter what it is that you're working on. Yeah, love it. Well, listen, everybody, check out spidertech.com. Rahul, thanks for doing this. And and uh, thanks for doing a good work. I think you're not just making money, but you're making our country better. So thank you for me. I appreciate it, Jess. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Bye, everyone. Yeah.